Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. That's info at icrnetwork.org. Welcome everybody to the next episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Today I'm very happy to be sitting here with Paul Haywood and Anna Schwickeran. Um, so Paul is the Sir Francis Hill Professor of European Politics at the University of Nottingham. And um, today we have also a guest host uh, from the ICRN, Anna Schwickeran. Would you mind quickly introducing yourself to the audience before we get into the interview? Yeah, hi, my name is Anna. I'm a PhD candidate from Germany and also a co-founder of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. Right. So we are um, here together at a workshop in Oxford and took the opportunity to interview Paul. And uh, in the spirit of this workshop, we wanted to ask you a very basic question that is essentially this. When it comes to corruption, how does it affect me? So, corruption effectively is a form of injustice. Uh, it means in any conception of the term that people are getting things that they shouldn't be getting or things are not operating in the way that they should be operating. And so whenever that happens, there is a fundamental injustice going on. And as somebody who is strongly committed to the ideals and values of fairness, of transparency, of openness, etc. Whenever there is corruption taking place, that affects not just me, it affects us all. So we're all diminished by it. And how did you actually get interested in this topic? When did your interest in corruption and injustice start? So my, my interest in, in questions around justice integrity, etc., has, has in some sense, has been lifelong. I've always been politically engaged and active. Uh, but my specific interest in corruption was sparked in the early 1990s, shortly after the uh, revelation of the Manipulite Tangentopoli scandals in Italy. And as happened quite widely at that time, Uh, scholars, academics started looking to see whether what was happening in Italy was also happening in, in other European countries, and at, at the time particularly European countries, because before then corruption had not elicited a huge amount of, of interest. There had been some you know, very notable scholars who had been working on it, but generally corruption was something that happened in other parts of the world. But the, the Italy revelations made people think, well, hang on, maybe this is happening closer to home. And 
So there was a seminar organized uh, in Poitiers in France, and it was organized by Yves Meny, one, one of those scholars who had looked at the issue of corruption for, for a number of years, and, and Donatella della Porta, who, who, of course, did some amazingly important work on the whole Tangentopoli scandals. And what they wanted to do was to look at the question of whether similar things were happening in other countries. Now, I was uh, uh, an expert on Spain, on Spanish politics, and I think for no other reason than that, they, they came to me and said, well, might you look at corruption in Spain? Which was something I was happy to do, but it was because I was a, an expert on Spain rather than an expert on corruption. But I started to look at the, the issue, and I just found it fascinating. Um, the more I looked at it, the more I read about it, the more um, interesting the questions that it was raising became. And so I went to this, this workshop in Poitiers, which was held at a, a theme park called Futuroscope, which uh, was ironically appropriate because there, there were rumors that it had itself been built with slush money from, <laughs> from the local mayor. But those, those, those were only, only rumors, and, and it really took off from there. That was in, I think, 1993. And how do you think the, the corruption research field has changed since then? So it's changed enormously. Um, so 1993 uh, was, of course, the year in which people from uh, the World Bank left to set up Transparency International. And then in 1995 was when you had the first Corruption Perceptions Index published. And And that cannot be underestimated as a, a transformational event in the way that corruption started to be studied. Prior to that, corruption was mainly looked at from a qualitative point of view. It, it was studied as a phenomenon that took place in, in particular places with in-depth analyses of, of how it manifested and so on. But it was desperately difficult for obvious reasons to get data on corruption. So, you know, in terms of measuring it, understanding its its impact, etc., there, there wasn't much to go on. And of course, the Corruption Perceptions Index and, and parallel to that, the, the World Bank's Control of Corruption uh, Indicator and its World Governance Indicators, for the first time provided some hard data. Whether it was reliable data is a, is a different issue, but here, here were were numbers, were figures that we could work with. And I think the key change was that at that point, you started to attract interest from different kinds of, of approach and different scholarship. So economists in particular, I think, started to get very interested in the question because here was something they, they could work with. Here were some, some hard numbers that they could start to use. And so the approach to studying corruption, I think, started to develop in, in new directions where it became much easier to think of corruption in terms of identifying dependent and independent variables and then using the data that was being developed through these indices to, to explore in, in more depth um, some of the reasons why it was happening, looking at explanatory factors, trying to see what its impact was and a host of other issues. And so you started to get a, a wholly new approach, I think, to looking at corruption compared to what had gone before.
Well, you said that when you started, you were invited to this workshop because you were an expert on Spain and not on corruption. So um, how did you start? How did I start on... Working on corruption. Oh, so the, I did the, the obvious thing that any academic researcher would do, which is to go and do a literature search on what existed on, on corruption, um, trying to find out conceptually what it was, who had published on it, what, what was available. At that time, there was, there was literature, of course, but there wasn't a huge amount. Um, and I think it's one of the really interesting things to look at. You know, I've done this myself, is that you track the, the rise in publications in academic journals with corruption as a main focus, and it's exponential from around about the mid-1990s. And so in, you know, in modest moments, I could say, well, I sparked that, but of course I, it had nothing to do with, with that. It was just me jumping onto the same bandwagon as other people were, were doing at the same time. And so when I started, I, I looked at what was available. I started to, to look at the literature, and I very quickly came to a clear view that even at the basic level, talking about corruption was problematic because it wasn't clear that you could get a straightforward understanding of what is it that we're talking about. 25 years on, I think we're pretty much still in that same situation, which... Uh, I'm not sure whether that's uh, a good thing to say for an academic or not, but uh, but we do still face some of the very fundamental problems. You know, what is it? What causes it? How much is there? What's its impact? These questions we were asking 25 years ago, we're still asking them today. And what kind of questions do you think are useful to ask if we want to get better answers than we've gained in the last 25 years? Well, I'd say that my own journey has, has moved very much from sort of a more conceptual approach to trying to understand both what corruption is and, and why it happens and how it manifests, which all fits very much within, I, I think, you know, Mark Pyman used a, a, a term which I think is absolutely correct in, in describing how academics have largely gone about looking at corruption. And he said the problem with most academic research on corruption is that it admires the problem, why it's problematic or what its impact is or why it happens or how it looks and so on. But it says nothing about what you can do about it. There's very, very little in terms of the academic research which addresses, well, here's the problem. So how are we going to address it? Other than the a lot of the work which actually is very unhelpful in that regard. So you know, there's a a lot of econometric based analysis which looks at you know some of the the causes of corruption and identifies things which are frankly just not very helpful to know. So you know if for instance countries that are closer to the equator are more likely to suffer from corruption. Well, what are you supposed to do? You can't sort of drag the country away from the equator. It's, it's just not, it's not particularly useful to, to have that kind of information. So I think the, the, the key thing now is to start asking questions which lend themselves to some kind of response in regard to, well, okay, we know that corruption 
causes all kinds of problems. We know it's widespread. We know it has many different manifestations. We know that it changes and evolves over time. But the key thing is, well, what can we do about it? What, what might work? And I think there we, we need to actually start developing different approaches to the kinds that we've used in, in the past. It's really interesting that you say that there is a, a famous paper in um, economics by Esther Duflo, and she says, well, we should look at economists as plumbers, right? So they sort of get employed to solve a problem, and then once we have identified the problem, we should be pragmatic about it. And oftentimes it's not the, the fancy models that do the best, but it's actually basic economics that is often most useful to yep. solve problems in real life. So what do you think could be a good starting point for, let's say, young researchers interested in, in doing pragmatic anti-corruption research? What's a good starting point for them? So I my starting point would be that when you're faced with... Um, what I call a wicked problem. So there's a, a well-known literature on so-called wicked problems, which are issues which are so complex because there are so many different interdependencies involved and where you know, changing one variable has un unanticipable impacts on, on others. In situations like that, then you should stop thinking in terms of how do you solve it and start thinking in terms of how do you manage it. You know, corruption is, is a constant. There's been no society in, in the whole of history which hasn't been affected to some extent or another by corruption. You know, all ages, all genders, all types, all so, so on. So corruption is always going to be with us. We're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to solve it. And I get quite impatient with the idea that we should adopt you know, zero tolerance to corruption or, or that there are fixes or this is how you get rid of it. You won't get rid of it. So the best we can do is, is manage it. And so in order to be able to manage it, the first thing we have to do is understand, well, what are the most egregious or damaging or, or disruptive elements of, of corruption? What are the kinds of, of corruption that really make a bad difference in, in terms of how they affect people's lives or what makes people suffer most. And, and so when you start to do that, then you can start to identify well which, which elements of this extraordinarily wide-ranging phenomenon are we going to focus on. And from there, start looking at questions of, well, where can we actually make a difference? What can, what can we do that might make a difference? And I think one of the problems with a huge amount of work that, that's taken place on corruption in recent years is that it, it's pitched at the wrong level. So it tends to focus on nation-states. Nation so corruption as a problem in a given country, corruption in the United Kingdom, corruption in Brazil, corruption in South Africa, wherever it might be, and tries to sort of address it at that level. So as if you know, corruption is a property of, of, a, of a given state and there's a certain amount of it and you can identify how much there is and then, and then work at the state level to, to address it. And I just don't think that really makes much sense. I think in order to have a, a chance of really making a difference, we've got to disaggregate, we've got to understand what corruption looks like in different sectors and operate at that sector level to try and have an impact which, you know, is probably well below the level of a state, 
but is more likely to have a real impact on people who are affected by concrete corrupt activities. Right. So I know that you have also been working on trying to um, make it easier for people to understand corruption at these different sector levels. It's a little bit like the work that we've been doing in the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network, where we try to make sense of this vast territory of corruption and try to have a sort of roadmap to distinguish between the different types of corruption, also the different forms of corruption in different sectors. Could you tell us a little bit more about the website Curbing Corruption that, that you've yeah. been working so, on? So curbingcorruption.com is, is an initiative that I've worked on supporting um, Mark Pyman, uh, whom I quoted earlier as, as, as coming up with the term that academics have too often admired the problem rather than trying to address it. So, so Mark and I have been talking for some time now about how might we try to go about changing that or how might we, we help. And uh, we've come up with this curbing corruption idea, which is very much focused on sector-specific approaches to tackling corruption. And it starts from the observation that If you try to tackle everything from the level of the nation state, then you're just going, you're going to miss all kinds of things. You're going to miss both transnational corruption, uh, international corrupt networks and so on, but you're also going to miss the reality that a great deal of corruption takes place in very, very specific settings. So what we've tended to do or what collectively we've tended to do is get far too hung up on trying to identify this thing, corruption, come up with a definition. And so, for instance, uh, the abuse of public office for private gain is a very widely cited definition which a lot of people use. And then from there, we, we, we kind of say, well, if that's what's what corruption is, then we can identify various types of corruption. But we operate at incredibly generic levels. And so we say, well, there's grand corruption and there's petty corruption, or there's bureaucratic corruption and there's political corruption, individual corruption and institutional corruption. And we tend to do this very much in terms of these binary oppositions, one type or another type, often referred to as one versus another, as if somehow they're in competition with each other. That's, to me, just astonishingly crude. Now, I think it's, it's more useful, and the way, one of the ways we, we should move forward is, is to understand corruption more in terms of corruption itself being a, uh, a generic descriptor at the very, very top level. So, so in taxonomic terms, this is the, the, the kind of the core that we want to To look at. But then in terms of how we actually tackle it, we need, we need to understand in far more depth and detail what it is that we're working with. So, you know, corruption is often compared to cancer. It's a very, very standard trope to call corruption a cancer. I don't think it's a very good analogy, except in one regard. And it's the one regard which doesn't actually get used when, when people talk about corruption as cancer. So if we look at cancer, you know, we know that cancer is the uncontrolled subdivision of cells in a body which then start to attack that body. And you know, all cancer operates on that basis. 
But specific cancers work in very different ways. And, and, you know, if you talk to an oncologist or to people who are doing the frontline research on cancer, they're not just working on tackling cancer. They're working on tackling very, very specific cancers. And there, there are over 200 different cancers that we can now identify. And people work very, very precisely on these different cancers because the different cancers, although they fundamentally are the same in terms of subdivision of cells which has gone wrong, they operate in very different ways. Their, their pathologies are different, their etiologies are different, the way they, they develop are different. And they're not only different from each other, they're different from individual to individual. So the way that an individual uh, reacts to or responds to having cancer differs from one person to another. Now, I think that's actually a much more useful analogy for, for corruption than just saying that corruption is a cancer. So if we looked at corruption in terms of similar differentiations, that, you know, there, might, there are you know, not just 200, there's probably even more different types of corruption which differ in the way that they develop and so on. We're going to get a much better appreciation of how to tackle that. Because if you think of the successes of anti-cancer research, the real breakthrough came once we start, once we had uh, DNA sequencing available to us so that you could target anti-cancer uh, drugs at even down to the level of individuals. And so the really exciting work that, that's going on now is, is, is actually starting to, to look at people's own immune systems to see how you can turn the immune system to work against the cancer in, in an individual body. I think that's a, a really potentially exciting analogy for, for corruption. We, st we should start to look at the immune systems against corruption, which would focus on, on things like integrity promotion, which we can talk about in a moment. So the first step is to start to disaggregate away from the generic description of corruption. That's, that's, that's really not helpful just to talk about corruption. We need to talk about corruption in terms of where it's taking place, what its impact is, what the specific problems it's giving rise to are, why it's happening, and then, armed with that information, start to understand are there specific interventions that we can develop to address that particular type of corruption in that particular setting with this way of, of, of working. And only by doing that, I think, are we likely to make any kind of real difference. It will be slow, it will be uneven, it won't necessarily get captured in, in generic national level indicators immediately, but it's more likely over time, I think, to give us the kinds of tools and insights that we need to tackle specific instances of corruption in, in an effective way. So if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying that um, corruption is an umbrella term, sort of, and one of the, the shared features across all types of corruption seems to be the injustice that you mentioned earlier, right? And that in order to really do some more pragmatic approaches to what corruption, it makes sense to contextualize it. But then also to understand what are actually the comparable things across these different contexts. Yeah, so it's not it's not just contextualizing and and, and comparing. I think that's important, but it's really getting down to, to understanding how and why it happens mm -hmm. and, and what what's driving it, how it manifests yeah. in order to be able to understand 
you know, both what might be done to, to tackle it, but also what some of the, the, the consequences of, of that might be. So, you know, to give you some specific examples, so let, let's say you, you are very, very concerned about, you know, corruption in the health sector. So I'll give you an actual concrete example where in Uganda it was decided or the president decided that corruption in the health sector was something that he really wanted to to take action against because it was widespread and it was it was well known that doctors in particular were extracting bribes for uh, providing services which should have been free to to patients when when they went to see the doctors now you can put in all kinds of of measures to prevent that happening so in Uganda there was quite a high profile sort of attempt to show or, or to catch people so you, you had you know, people turning up with hidden cameras then being asked for a bribe and then it would be revealed that they were you know caught on film doing this and they'd be arrested with high profile and so on and undoubtedly that was quite effective in, in reducing specific instances of, of bribe taking on the part of doctors. What it didn't take account of was some of the reasons why that corruption was happening in the first place. Now, undoubtedly, you know, there will have been some doctors who were engaged in corruption because they were venal, selfish, wanted to, to get some extra money or felt they could get away with it. Of course, there's always going to be an element of, of that. But equally, it would seem, and there's plenty of evidence to support this, that some people in the medical professions who engaged in bribery were doing it because they simply lacked the resource to be able to perform their duties without extracting bribes. And so this was almost, in, in some senses, a kind of a Robin Hood approach. You, you'd, you'd take bribes from people in order to be able to buy the medical supplies that you weren't being provided with because the state was not investing enough to support the health service more generally. And so if you stop that kind of corruption, but you don't do anything about the level of resource that you put into the health service, then you're potentially dealing with one problem only to make another problem much worse. And that's what I mean about really understanding what's going on so that you, you know, if you understood that the real driver of corruption was lack of resource to the health service, then your focus would be on resource in the health service rather than on trying to stop doctors taking bribes. And then at the same time, there is some evidence that if you, for example, only increase public salaries, that in and of itself also doesn't seem to suffer. So it seems to be that you need to really understand all these factors that are sort of contributing to corruption and try to tackle them either directly at the same time or sequentially, but at least be aware of them, I guess, right? So that, that's exactly right. So that goes back to this wicked problem mm -hmm. idea that, you know, these things are really, really complex and, and you know, it's not like you can do one intervention and that solves it because any one intervention is going to have knock-on effects for others. Right. It also goes back to this issue of managing rather than right. solving the problem. We're never going to get rid of all corruption in health service frontline delivery. Now, that's naive to assume that we could, because there will always be some people who will try to get away with extracting bribes or whatever. But what you can do is manage the problem to a level where, you know, it's not 
wholly disruptive of the way that the system works, so that it becomes the exception rather than than the rule. And so it will happen, but it shouldn't be the norm. So um, I have another question. When it comes to uh, looking at corruption on this individual level, as you just said, or like really going into it, what does this mean for our research methods? Do we have to change something? Well, I don't think we have to change. I think we need to develop and, and just go further. Right? So, so, you know, I don't think there's a, a huge amount to be gained by trying to develop further generic indicators or, or you know, a new form of measuring the amount of corruption in, in X versus Y. You know, we, we kind of know, you know, we, we know where the real problem areas are in, 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 in terms of, you know, corruption being very, very widespread. And, you know, we're not going to get much more information by continuously asking that, those kinds of questions. So I think we need to start asking different questions, which goes back to some of the things I've been saying about, you know, getting more in-depth understanding. So I think where the direction for the future is, is in much more targeted research, looking at specific problems. One of the things I I would like people to do is, is to stop talking about corruption as what they're researching and be much more specific about the particular problem that that corruption is manifesting or, or, or demonstrating. You know, what, you know, corruption is, is a fairly meaningless term unless you can specify You know, what is the actual issue that you want to address? I mean, if you say it's corruption, well, you know, yeah, we all want to address corruption, but what's the specific thing you want to, want to address? And once you've done that, then I think the research needs to look at how do we understand it better in order, and this is the key change, I think, in order to develop interventions that can make a difference. Because if it's just research for the sake of understanding what's happening why it's happening, what it looks like. You know, we, we know that. I don't think we're going to get much more than, than we already have. But research that says, well, if you do this, then these are the likely consequences or these are the kinds of things that might work or, or these are the things that you need to be careful about, that we do need to know more about. And that means, you know, much more specific use of things like randomized controlled trials in order to understand particular interventions, understanding the relationship between, you know, how you can intervene in one area and then can you scale it up? What are the risks with, with that? Can you take interventions that seem to work in one area and transport them to another area? So it's, it's about understanding specific interventions in much, much more detail in order to be able to develop a whole host, a whole array of different interventions that work to tackle specific problems in particular settings, rather than saying, here are three steps to tackling corruption, or you know, here's your five-piece five toolkit that will answer your corruption problems. You know, that, that's what we need to move on, away from. So we are approaching the end of our lunch break, so I think we have two more questions for you. One um, would be that the one that Anna came up with? Yeah, I don't know if you already answered this question, actually, in, at least in part. So the question would be, what did you always want to say about corruption that didn't fit into a research paper? Or are you already doing this with the uh, curbing corruption? Yeah. 
So, so in a sense, curbing corruption, I think, is a really important step forward in, in terms of being a, a, a resource that's aimed very much at practitioners and policymakers. Obviously, I hope that, that other researchers look at it and, and indeed contribute to it and, and engage with it. But it is, it's very much focused on how can we make a difference? What are the things that we can do that will improve things? Now, I guess one of my lessons that I've learned over many, many years is that academics, practitioners, policymakers all work to their own agendas, their own constraints, their own targets, their own requirements, their own career development aims and aspirations, etc. And that sometimes makes it very difficult for them to communicate effectively. Policymakers operate you know, in, in, in electoral democracies, there's an electoral cycle. It means that inevitably there, there's a degree of short-termism about what they're looking for. You know, no policymaker wants to hear that you know, this problem is going to take 50 years to, to resolve. And that's not something that you can very easily sell to, to the public either. Practitioners don't want to know all the problems that they're facing. They want to know, well, what can we actually do? So, and academics you know, are trained to question. And so you know, it's natural that a lot of academic research is... is in some sense, is destructive. It, it, it always calls into question you know, what we know and tries to identify why things don't work. It's not so good at trying to develop solutions that do work. So you have different incentives from different groups, which makes it quite difficult for them to understand each other's perspectives. But equally, you get a situation in, in which quite often academics will say, well, I've, you know, I've written about that. I've I've, you know, I've done the research, and you you haven't read it, not really appreciating that it, you know, it just may not either be practical in, in logistical terms for people who are not in the academic community to be able to to read the work. They have other things that they need to do with their time. But equally, some of that work is just not very accessible. It's just not very readable for people who are not in, in the academic community. I think academics quite often talk to each other rather than, than to others, or just assume that, that people will be familiar with, with their work. And so we need to find ways in which we can get these different groups to talk more effectively to each other, to try and get to common goals. And, and the CurbingCorruption.com is, is part of a, an attempt to do that, along with, with a, a series of other things I've been in, engaged with. But, you know, these are huge, huge challenges that are going to take a long, long time to to address. And ultimately, of course, as I've said, we're not going to solve corruption. So the sooner we can accept that, the more likely we are to, to get constructive dialogue going. Final question. Uh, we always ask our guests for the pick of the podcast, right? So something that you would recommend our audience to read, listen, watch... It can be anything. It can be just your favorite movie. It can be a book that inspired you. Anything that makes you optimistic about the topic of corruption, whatever it is that comes to mind. So I think one of the really interesting developments in, in recent years has been the growing understanding that a lot of corruption is very, very complex and, and transnational in nature, which kind of un underlines this point that the sort of the country-based aggregate indicators 
just don't capture some of that. And so you've had the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and increasing revelations of you know offshore financing, illicit financial flows, etc. And I think that's all very good, but it's also very complicated. And, and so sometimes you need to look to other sources than the kind of standard academic research to get a, an insight in, into some of how that works. So one thing I would strongly recommend anybody who is able to to access this to have a look at is a, a television series, which was an adaptation of a, a John McCarry novel, but, but brought up to date, and it's called The Night Manager. And it looks at the interpenetration between criminal networks and illicit financial flows and, and corrupting a whole series of of officials in both the public and the private sector across a range of, of different countries. And I think that's probably one of the most insightful but also accessible and indeed entertaining programs that I've seen recently and probably would give people more insight into the reality of some of the corruption issues that we we need to address than any number of academic research monographs. Great. We, we sure check it out and we're also going to link to it in the show notes. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure.